Thank you for downloading and listening to This Pathological Life. If you're interested in continuing the story, we have a second series called This Medical Life. Please download it and subscribe now. Dr. Travis Brown, why do we need a podcast called This Pathological Life? Every disease has its own story to tell. So we're going to tell them. In this episode, we are going to be addressing the topic of transgender. In particular, how this topic intersects, Travis, with your world of pathology. Uh, But before we start, perhaps a definition would be useful. Uh, So transgender itself is an umbrella term for people whose gender identity and or gender expression differs from what's typically associated with the sex they were assigned at birth. And it's important to note, even within that, there's a range of expressions of transgender. There are people who identify as another gender. That's it. Uh, There are people who take prescribed hormones to align their bodies with their gender identity. And there are people who undergo gender reassignment surgery. There. There's There's our starting point, the definition of some terms. So when we look at the story of transgender, there's, there's one story that, that sticks out. Now, this is a story of uh, Mary Ann and Jeremiah Bolke. So in the late 1700s, they marry. We're in Cork Island, and they have three children. The oldest brother is known as John. The middle daughter is known as Margaret Ann and there's a young sister who we don't know anything about. We don't know much about their upbringing. Uh, We know that John became an apprentice to an an attorney in Dublin and wanted to marry. Now this is where the story gets a bit odd for me because I can't quite work out how this happens but the father ends up gifting the son John around 1,500 pounds, which is a phenomenal amount of money. And his wife, Mary Ann, and Margaret become destitute. Wow. So the gift for marriage kicks them out of home. And there's a, there's a quote where they say, thrown out of home and house by a husband and a son. Like, uh, for me, I can't work out if that was common or if that was an odd thing, but it happened. So... Marianne, the mother, contacts her brother, which she hasn't seen in 30 years, in London, in 1806. His name is James Barry. He doesn't have much money, but he's got some very influential friends. Dr. Edward Fryer and General Francisco Miranda. And this is where Marianne and Margaret move to. Now, in 1806, James Barry died. He leaves... A lot of money for Marianne and Margaret. It's clear at this time that Margaret was intelligent and had made an impression on James Barry's influential friends. Mm -hmm. And somehow, between 1806 and 1808, there's a transition for Margaret to go to medical school where she's now known as James Barry. We have correspondence to a solicitor that says this move from London to Edinburgh is for a James Barry, but the solicitor actually wrote it's from Miss Margaret Bulky. 
And so this James Barry goes on to study medicine. He's an unusual man. He's known to be short stature, slight build, smooth skin, always wears a, an overcoat, has a high-pitched voice, and has some shoe inserts, which I'm not sure if they knew at the time or it was theorized afterwards. Mm -hmm. And to be honest, the people who were in the medical school at the time thought this was a child and couldn't take exams. They thought James Barry was 12 years old. Now, influential friends stepped in because they were going to stop James from having the examination. You're too young. Now, this is a time when women cannot study. We're 50 years away from, from women being able to study medicine. So in this case, when you're referring to James as he, that would be the pronoun that would have been used at that time. Exactly. And, and on purpose to get through the system. Right. Mm. And so these powerful friends somehow step in and James Barry is able to sit the exam and passes. 22 years old, in medicine, enlists in the army. Oh, wow. And becomes an assistant surgeon. James is promoted quickly to assistant staff surgeon, ends up serving 10 years in Cape Town, and befriends a governor by the name of Lord Charles Somerset. James is known to have a bit of a short temper, has a foul mouth, even violent outbursts at times. There's even arguments that uh, James was involved in a duel of sorts. However, their skill was not questioned. James treated rich, poor colonists, slaves alike, uh, was known to be a reformer for barracks, prisons, asylums, was a vegetarian and travelled with a dog whose name was either Psyche or Psyche, and over the years, climbed to the rank of Inspector General in charge of military hospitals. Mm -hmm. In 1859, discharged to London, a respiratory illness, most likely bronchitis, uh, about the age of 70s. Now, James tried to get back in, uh, but couldn't. And then uh, in 1865, became unwell due to dysentery, uh, a bowel infection, so passing blood and lots of fluid, and ended up dying. Now, it's reported that Dr. Barry's wishes was he didn't want his body to be washed. He wanted to be buried in the clothes that he died in. His wishes weren't granted for whatever means. The charwoman, the maid of the household, cleaned the body and found, quote, a perfect woman. End quote. And so this caused some scandalous stories. The military was confused and embarrassed. The death certificate was written by a friend of Dr. Barry's, whose name was Major D.R. McKinnon. And he wrote on the death certificate that it was none of his business, the gender of Dr. Barry. It was even reported that Dr. James Barry showed signs of a past pregnancy, most likely when they were very young. And all of this built up to the military, sealing James Barry's records for over 100 years. And it caused a lot of articles. Even Charles Dickens wrote about it in an essay called A Mystery Still, but there was also some discussions around whether Lord Charles Somerset from Cape York knew about it because they had a great relationship and James Barry even described him as my more than father, my almost only friend. Unfortunately, Dr. James Barry died without any family, didn't have any money, and there was no will. And it's suspected that Lord Charles Somerset 
They may have had a relationship, and to be honest, I hope that's true, because it seems like it would have been a very isolated life, quite lonely. But that's the story of Dr. James Barry. It's profound to reflect on the fact, whether those wishes about not wanting to be uh, have the body dressed, that James had to yield to protect his secret because society just was so blinkered at the time in this binary uh, view. And here we are. It's 2020. I don't think we've got it quite right just yet. Before we go any further, I'd like to change medium temporarily so that we can introduce into the podcast uh, ClinPath's medical director and chemical pathologist, Dr. Davika Thomas, who's joining us via Zoom. Uh, Davika, welcome. Thank you. When we're talking about reference ranges, how do we normally come up with reference ranges uh, for the general population uh, just in, in this instance, Davika? Yeah, so the reference interval is very much a statistical idea. Um, so what we do is we randomly go and test a healthy, supposedly healthy population, would be a particular gender, a particular age group, or the whole population, and we test everyone. And then we line up all these results we get for them. And we take the middle um, 95% in some situations, or 9 to 7%, people who fall in the middle, uh, assuming there is a, a, a normal distribution. And then there's that 2.5% um, if we took the middle 95, there's 2.5% of people that will be below this interval that we take and 2.5% that are above this interval. So that's, we just assume that it's a normal distribution and we take what fits the majority, about 95% of people. We wanted to get you in on this conversation because within your area of uh, interest and speciality, what are the, the chemistry considerations we need to take into account for, for transgender patients? So um, classically, traditionally, uh, there are a few tests that are gender-specific or sex-specific, I should say. So these tests are dependent on your hormonal makeup um, and your sex, as we would say anatomically or uh, biologically. And uh, with hormonal, hormonal treatment towards congruence with gender identity, we would see that these particular tests will change over time with that treatment. So in that case, we need to alert the doctors and the patients themselves that these have to be interpreted with that in mind and then to see where they best fit and are we able to pick up something pathological as opposed to something that's happening physiologically that is desired in their hormonal treatment. So that's the crux of the matter, to be able to diagnose something quickly when there is a change, knowing that there is a change happening in the background. And, and if we think for a moment about reference ranges that are being used, what are the implications? So that has been a problem, uh, mainly because people who have uh, a gender identity that is incongruous to gender assigned at birth they have a lot of barriers and one of the main barriers is that they uh, they don't get what they should from the system. So there's all these different barriers. And one of the barriers with the laboratory system is that they are boxed into one of two categories, male or female. And 
and that is not uh, not on. So for non-binary people, for example, as well as the trans uh, population, we can't categorize them into one box or the other. Um, a lot of people are in transition uh, and a lot of people will choose where they want to be. In. So we've got these two boxes of reference intervals, two boxes of values we give as this is normal for you. That doesn't fit for them. And so we need to try and accommodate them and give them a meaningful result that can be used to interpret their situation. So if I say your test result for kidney function is X and it should be between A and B, that may not be the right interval. We might have to give them a, a different interval like C between C and D. So at the moment, that's what we're working towards to see how can we accommodate them, everyone in, in that um, spectrum during transition, pre-transition, post-transition and during transition. Do we have any evidence of what reference ranges will be appropriate for the transgender community? This has been in discussion for several years now. The American Association of Clinical Chemistry um, have had specific workshops. Uh, there is a lot of discussion groups, committees working on these. Um, it's very difficult to get agreement on how um, these reference intervals should be um, gathered. For a start, we need to find enough uh, people in particular situations to try and get enough numbers to come up with that interval. Um, then there is the, that that long spec spectrum. So how far along treatment do you have to be before you are a, a trans individual? Um, are you still in transition? So different people choose different endpoints, and they uh, and a lot of for, for a lot of these people, their treatment would depend on what goal they want to achieve. So that is another thing to be considered. In general, there is no consensus at this stage as to what. Um, as a reference interval for um, trans individuals. But what we have is that, uh, what we do say is that if a transgender uh, individual has been treated with hormones for six months or more, they, their results should be interpreted using the, their gender identity um, sex reference intervals. For example, tra a trans woman should have their reference interval in the female reference interval if they've had hormonal treatment for six months or more. So do we know what's, what's happening to these, these patients? So their, their body will start to respond to the hormonal therapy. Should they have, let's say, a transgender female have a female reference range or should we actually have transgender specific ranges for them? Um, the, the ideal goal would be to have a transgender specific um, reference interval because then we can tailor it and um, have all of the tests in that one lot. Um, at the moment, uh, as a uh, interim um, solution, if we use the female reference interval for a trans woman, what we're planning to do is to alert the doctors to say these are the specific tests that may change with estrogen treatment. Um, and then um, to give them both the male and the female reference intervals so they could pick where they, they are at. So if it's early on in treatment or whether they're later in treatment, have they gone through all the biological changes that they've desired? Um, so we're giving them that option, but at the same time, we are highlighting the particular tests that they need to pay attention to. So this is with regards to, as I said, um, picking up changes that are not biological, but pathological uh, early enough. For example, kidney function, um, 
or, and liver, liver tests. There was a presentation by Dr. Dina Green who presented at AACB in the US in 2019 just discussing some of the preliminary changes because they were doing a study on uh, 172 transgender people, uh, 79 transgender men and and 93 transgender women. And and they found that with regards to like a full blood count, uh, hematocrit and hemoglobin, Mm -hmm. the uh, reference ranges had changed. So the hormonal treatment brought the transgender males to up towards the cisgender male level mm-hmm. as well as the transgender women down to the uh, cisgender women level. So that one actually changes. Uh, I'm not sure if they know the mechanism. I think test, it may be, do, do you understand the, the mechanism that, that's, that, that's happening there? In, in a lot of these situations where we have a difference in the reference interval for just say biological male and biological female, it is uh, generally due to that testosterone and anabolic effect or, um, um, or an androgenizing effect of testosterone, feminizing effects of estrogen. So uh, blood count, uh, in, in the blood count, the red cell uh, volume, the, which is the hematocrit, and then the hemoglobin concentration, the iron levels, they're all, um, they're all changed with testosterone treatment more towards the cis male um, levels. The same applies to some of the liver tests to uh, kidney function tests. And then we also have calculated values that we report in the laboratory. So these calculated values, for example, one of the kidney function tests is calculated and that's dependent on tests that are um, dependent on what uh, biological sex you are. And so with uh, the trans individuals who've been treated with a particular set of hormones, we have to choose which uh, which reference interval they should be in and um, and alert doctors and flag those. Uh, sounds like we've still got a fair bit of work to do. Do we have a, a working range between when we're actually going to be able to do this? I mean, I, I understand in Sonic we have a working party doing this. Do we know yeah. how far we might be away from actually providing this? In order to be able to provide this, we have to go through IT, our laboratory information system, which was established many, many decades ago. And as you can imagine, it just has two slots, male and female. The first thing to do is to have um, other um, categories so we can accommodate these uh, other um, transgender individuals, non-binary individuals. So we have to enable that capability. Um, unfortunately, a lot of the electronic databases are set up that way, like the, the health, uh, e-health records, um, Medicare, for example. So those need to change. Um, the, um, and we need to be able to record these individuals as they come in. So otherwise, when they go in through uh, data entry, when the request form comes in, they get into one of these two boxes. And, that is the, and then we're not able to do anything in the laboratory because we don't know who they are. We haven't spoken to them. They just come in as a male or a female and we give them the appropriate reference interval. However, if we accommodate them in this way in the electronic data entry process, then when when this um, sample comes into the lab, we know that this uh, individual will need, uh, apart from the traditional one set of reference intervals, we can accommodate them to have both sets of reference intervals and flag what's appropriate. So that's where we are at at this stage, just working with the um, electronic database and the IT system. At the moment then, with that in mind, um, a GP, uh, what, what's important for them 
in communicating to laboratories about their transgender patients at this point in time while we wait for society to develop and for systems to That's come. right. Yes. We have had this situation with uh, uh, doctors. Um, if we don't know that the, the patient is a trans individual or a non-binary individual, there are a couple of particular tests that get deleted if they're not appropriate for that gender. For example, a prostate test. If the gender is recorded as female, then the R system automatically deletes it. But they may be a trans female and they may still have a prostate gland and we still need to do the screening. So we have a few doctors that treat transgender individuals and they're very good at giving us the information on the request form itself to say on estrogen therapy or on testosterone therapy and or um, actually saying they are a trans individual. Um, the, the sex that is recorded on the request form would be their gender identity, but how far down the track is what we need to know. So if they tell us that they've already commenced treatment, then that's even that is good enough for a start, then we can look at implementing these other um, solutions down the track in terms of giving them a, a reasonable, useful report. Dr. Davika Thomas, thank you for joining this Pathological Life. You're welcome. Thank you. Dr. Nicole Sladden is joining us for this part of the episode. Uh, Nicole is an anatomical pathologist with an interest in skin and gynecological pathology. Welcome, Nicole. Thank you, Steve. Do we know the changes that a transgender male body goes through with hormonal therapy and, and the health implications for them moving forward? We actually have quite a lot of information about this um, patient cohort because of gender reassignment surgery. For those transgender men who undergo mastectomy, what we see is that the epithelial component of the breast tissue uh, becomes inactive and somewhat atrophic. At the same time, the fibrous component of the stroma increases and so the breast overall has an inactive or resting appearance. In the literature, there's a single case report of metastatic breast cancer occurring in a transgender man. Um, And whilst that's hardly a um, formal review study, it suggests that there may be a protective effect against the development of DCIS or breast cancer in that, that population. If a transgender male has a mastectomy, will they still need to have breast checks? It actually is. The recommendations for uh, management for these patients are that they still have chest examinations on a yearly basis when they reach an age where um, breast examination would normally be conducted uh, and that that carry through to the age that screening ends, which is usually around 70, 75. Um, The rationale there is that a mastectomy may not remove all of the uh, glandular tissue on the chest and also the ectopic breast tissue uh, in the axilla uh, can very rarely be a presenting site for breast cancer. Mm-hmm. Um, moving on then to uh, the salping groove specimens that are sometimes received. Now, um, just, just explain that one, salping groove. Uh, so, yeah. <laughs> so, so this is uh, removal of the 
ovaries and the fallopian tubes. Yep. The fallopian tubes are really quite nondescript, but the ovaries uh, show a really um, consistent finding, and that is that they look to us as pathologists like polycystic ovarian syndrome. Uh, clearly, from a clinical perspective, this is, this is not the diagnosis that would be rendered, but what we see is a spectrum of changes that represent the hormonal environment, and the hormonal environment is one of high androgens uh, and low estrogens. Somewhere between 20 and 80% of the ovaries are polycystic with 12 or more follicles, partially involuted follicles or um, entirely fibrous cystic spaces. Uh, And at least 20% of these patients have substantially enlarged ovaries, which if um, they were to undergo ultrasound would meet the criteria for polycystic ovarian syndrome. And how's their endometrium? So the endometrium is really quite interesting. Um, About 80% of transgender men who are taking long-term testosterone therapy experience amenorrhea, although 60% report that they still have menstrual type cramps. In the setting of amenorrhea, I would anticipate as a pathologist that an endometrial biopsy would show um, atrophic changes. And atrophy uh, is characterised by small tubular inactive glands set within a stroma that's also somewhat inactive, if not um, looking a bit fibrotic. So that's what I would expect to see in a postmenopausal patient. It's actually not the case. Around a quarter of endometrial biopsies from these patients do look like that, but the majority of the remainder, kind of 60 to 70%, show ongoing proliferative activity. So they look like the first half of the the menstrual cycle where the glands are uh, developing, proliferating, and the endometrium is thickening. Now, that's actually really significant because um, in the largest case series that's available, which uh, contained 269, patients, 50% showed proliferative activity and nine of the patients had complex hyperplasia. Complex hyperplasia in itself is not a pre-malignant condition and in all of those nine patients there wasn't any atypia to accompany it, but it demonstrates that there mustn't be an assumption that because the patient has high circulating testosterone that it's not possible for um, hyperplasia, atypia or malignancy to arise. There is one case report in from that same series of endometrioid endometrial carcinoma occurring in a transgender male on um, long-term therapy. Lastly, the cervical changes, uh, they still need to have screening? Absolutely, they still need to have screening. Um, So hormones have no effect on the behaviour of HPV, to my knowledge, in any case. The significant factor for us as interpreting pathologists when we receive the um, cervical screening test uh, is understanding the hormonal background. And this this applies for all patients. Where there is high estrogen, the squamous cells of the cervix have a, a glycogenated appearance. They're plump, they're pale, and they're really quite easy to interpret. In low estrogen states, the cells are glycogen deficient and they're smaller, their cytoplasm is uh, denser, and in some cases this change can mimic a high-grade squamous intraepithelial lesion or an HCL. It's really important then that we know if a um, general practitioner or gynaecologist is undertaking screening in these patients that they are receiving testosterone therapy because it may change the diagnostic category into which cytology is put. Now, an addendum to that is that obviously in the current um, era of 
HPV PCR based screening, we won't be looking at the cells unless the patient already um, turns up a high risk HPV type by PCR. Now, is there any other health issues we, that, that doctors need to be aware of for this group? Look, here I'm going to put my skin pathologist hat on and talk about uh, hair loss, so alopecia, uh, and um, biopsy site reactions. So it's expected that anybody taking long-term testosterone therapy is going to experience some hair loss. Um, Androgenic alopecia is the uh, formal name for it. Uh, It's worth remembering, though, that there are other causes for alopecia that are not hormonally driven. The majority of the inflammatory types of alopecia are more common in females than they are in males. Um, I can't find any literature that suggests that this is hormonally driven. We think it's more um, associated with the tendency to autoimmune disease uh, and it would be certainly worth considering that a patient presenting with what they perceive to be um, excessive or new hair loss warrants warrants investigation for an inflammatory alopecia. So then turning to transgender females, what transformational changes can we see in, in these people that are relevant for their health moving forward? We have fewer specimens for this patient group and that reflects that gender reassignment surgery in that group is really often focused on um, vaginoplasty, vulvoplasty and labiaplasty and so on. But we do receive um, orchidectomy specimens, so that's removal of testis and spermatic cord and series reviews um, of those uh, specimens show that in the setting of long-term estrogen therapy, the uh, testes become uh, inactive and uh, have an atrophic appearance. It's really important, and I I am aware that all patients who begin hormonal therapy um, for the purpose of gender reassignment um, are counselled that they will almost certainly become infertile. Um, We see that play out in the uh, pathology. We um, observe usually no spermatogenesis or minimal spermatogenesis in the um, seminiferous tubules. The key organ um, of note really is the one that we never receive, and that's the prostate. So um, the prostate clearly is uh, very important for urinary function, and uh, transgender females retain a prostate. The uh, setting of long-term estrogen therapy um, raises the question of, well, we use estrogens to treat prostate cancer, so what happens to this patient population? And uh, it's actually, it's good news. Um the incidence of prostate cancer in that population is exceedingly low. Um, There are occasional case reports of metastatic prostate cancer presenting in people who've been receiving uh, estrogen therapy for 20, 30, 40 years before they developed metastatic cancer. And the incidence of prostate cancer is so low that undertaking routine prostate cancer screening either by PSA or by core biopsy isn't recommended. Is there anything else that's of uh, relevance at all? I think I would circle back to my comment about injection site reactions though. Um, people who are required to uh, inject any medication subcutaneously over a long period of time uh, may experience um, reactions at the at the injection sites and um, in such cases as a, as a general practitioner is taking a biopsy near one of those sites, it would be helpful for us to know that, that this is the case. Well, look, you've answered all of my questions. Uh, look, thank you very much for your time, Nicole. I, we really appreciate it. Thank you. 
This Pathological Life is produced by ClinPath Pathology in South Australia. Episode notes, references and learning objectives when applicable can be found at thispathologicallife.com.au and you can contact the hosts on Twitter via at Dr. Travis Brown or at Steve Davis. Thanks again for listening. And just a reminder, if you haven't done it yet, have a quick search in your podcast app for our second series, This Medical Life. Dr. Travis Brown has rolled up some extra guests, some extra topics, and we continue the story there. And we'd love to have you along.